You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Nev March. Nev is the recent winner of the Minotaur Books Mystery Writers for America Award for the Best First Crime Fiction. She is a former business analyst, and uh, she now teaches creative writing at Rutgers Osher Institute. I'm going to talk to her this week about her first novel, Murder in Old Bombay. It is a, um, a historical I guess it's a kind of murder mystery and adventure novel, extremely literary. Um, it's very, very uh, densely descriptive, very well researched. It's an absolutely fantastic novel. And I can also really recommend the audiobook, which is beautifully read. And uh, the sequel, Peril at the Exposition, um, will be coming out in July 20, uh, in July of this year. So, um, Nave is a, an, a Parsi Zoroastrian herself. The main characters, the, the, um, the two, um, victims of murder in the book are Parsi Zoroastrian women. And it, it takes part, part largely within a Parsi family. In the Pars- in uh, DPC Dada Parsi community, and as many of you know, I am a um, uh, my father was a Parsi Zoroastrian, and although my mother wasn't Parsi, I grew up in the in the Parsi Bagh uh, in Karachi. I spent my early childhood in the Parsi Bagh in Karachi, and I also lived in the Parsi Bagh in Bombay in Kushru Bagh. So I had, the novel had especially strong resonances for me. Welcome, Nev. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Ayana. So um, would you like to begin by by reading us a passage from the novel so we can get a feel for it? Absolutely. So I'm going to read the first two and a half pages of the book. Gives you a good sense of it. The Widower's Letter, Puna. February 1892. I turned 30 in hospital in a quiet, carbolic-scented ward with little to read but newspapers. Recuperating from my injuries, a slow and tedious business, I developed an obsession with the recent story. All of India was shocked by the deaths of two young women who fell from the university clock tower in broad daylight. The more I read about it, the more this matter puzzled me. Two well-to-do young women plunged to their deaths in the heart of Bombay, a bustling city under the much-touted British law and order. Some called it suicide, but there seemed to be more to it. Most suicides die alone. These ladies hadn't, not exactly. Three men had just been tried for their murder, and I wondered what the hell happened. 
Major Stephen Smith of the 14th Light Cavalry Regiment entered the ward, empty but for me, ambling as one accustomed to horseback. Taking off his white pith helmet, he mopped his forehead. It was warm in Pune this February. I said, Hello, Stephen. He paused, brightened, and handed me a package tied in string. Happy birthday, Jim. How do you feel? The presents I'd received in my life I could count on one hand. Waving him to the bedside chair, I peeled the brown paper back and grinned at the book. Stephen had heard me talk long enough about my hero. A sign of the four, Sherlock Holmes. He nodded at the newspapers piled about my bed. Interested in the case? Mm, seen this? I tapped the Chronicle of India I'd scoured these past hours. Trial of the century, they called it. Blighters were acquitted. Outside, palm trees swished with a warm tropical gust. He sat, his khaki uniform stark in the whitewashed ward, smoothing a finger over his blonde mustache. Been in the news for weeks? Court returned a verdict of suicide. I scoffed. Suicide, bollocks. Smith frowned. Hmm, why were not? The details don't line up. They didn't fall from the clock tower at the same time, but minutes apart. If they'd planned to die together, wouldn't they have leapt from the clock tower together? And look here, the husband of one of the victims wrote to the editor. I folded the newspaper to the letter and handed it over. It read, Sir, what you proposed in yesterday's editorial is impossible. Neither my wife Bacha nor my sister Pilu had any reason to commit suicide. They had simply everything to live for. Were you to meet Bacha, you could not mistake her vibrant joy de vivre. She left each person she met with more than they had before. No, sir, this was not a woman prone to melancholia, as you suggest, but an intensely dutiful and fun-loving beauty, kind in her attention to all she met, generous in her care of elders, and admired by many friends. Sir, I beg you, do not besmirch the memory of my dear wife and sister with foolish rumours. Their loss has taken the life from our family, the joy from our lives. Leave us in peace. They are gone, but I remain. Sincerely, Adiframji, February 10th, 1892. As Smith finished reading, I swung my legs over the side of the bed and got up, or tried to, for the room did a dizzy whirl. I lurched, cursed, and grabbed for the bed and missed. Smith hollered, orderly, and scrambled over. They got me a bed, but it was a struggle. I'm not a small man. Take it slow, pal, Smith said, his expression odd as though I'd sprouted horns while he wasn't looking. All right, all right, I muttered to the orderly, a stocky Sikh in a grey turban and hospital uniform who tended to fuss over much. Saib has not been well for many months, the man assured me. Bollocks, had it been months? Only a few weeks, surely? I recalled feeling numb from cold, a fog of confusion, unfamiliar faces that came and went. Damn it, Jim, said Smith, wincing. We've got to talk about the frontier, the Afghans, Karachi. Do we? I asked. A drum began to pound in my head. I lay back and pressed the base of my palm to the aching pulse above my ear. Thank you so much. Could you tell our listeners more about the historical details that are known about the Rajabai clock tower um, deaths? And also, what initially drew you to that specific story? Sure. Iona, I read about this in 
2016, but I already knew about the story when I was growing up. Uh, whenever I wanted to do something daring, you know, join the mountaineering society is one example. It entailed an overnight trip with boys, okay? Uh, my parents would, of course, want to nip that in the bud, and they'd use code words. They'd say things like, mm, not a good idea. Remember the Godridge girls? And so I knew something bad had happened to the Godridge girls, right? Of course, he wouldn't elaborate exactly what had happened, but I gathered, you know, we talk about it at dinner and they'd say, oh, they fell from a clock tower, but bad things happened to them. And so it was essentially accepted that they'd been molested and had leapt to, dead, to their deaths to escape um, rape, essentially. And that, you know, escaping is sort of death, preferring death over dishonor was the way it was put. Um, but, you know, at the time, it was 1970s or early 1980s, and I thought this is something that has just happened a few years ago. But it, it left a sour taste in the mouth, right? It, it was this uh, unfinished business, uh, and the family held on to it. So uh, it wasn't even my family. It was just in our extended circle. You know, the Godrich family is a pretty prominent family in India, but uh, I don't think I made the connection at the time. It was only in 2016 when I came across an article in Farsi Khabar that I realized this had happened over 100 years ago. It happened in 1891, uh, in mm. April to be precise. Yeah, and so in the 1970s, my parents are still talking about this as if it's just happened. Um, so, so it And it stayed within the community because it was unsolved. There was no conviction. There were two um, trials. Three people were actually initially arrested. One person went to trial, but of course there was no evidence. And policing wasn't what we think of today. It had spawned from the military, actually military in charge of Bombay police. It was a tiny police force for already, which was at least half a million people in that city, uh, half a million is tiny compared to today's 20 million plus, but the police force was minuscule and uninformed and forensics was just developing at the time. So for these two girls to fall in this mysterious way, you know, these, this is a prominent family, these are well-to-do girls, why would they be depressed and why would they want to commit suicide? Nobody could explain it uh, and it stayed within the community. Uh, I got fascinated as I read that article because a lot of the details didn't line up exactly the way that I had Jim reading newspapers going, huh, really? Why didn't they die together? And then there were certain things missing. Um, the girl's spectacles were never found. The older girl, Bacha's spectacles. Well, if she can't see it across the street, how would she you know, get all the way to the tower and all the way up and if you're going to a tower to look at the scenery, wouldn't you need your spectacles? <laughs> so where are the spectacles? We still don't know. Uh, that was one of the three things that were missing. But anyways, I read through the details of the case and got absolutely fascinated. There were just so many things wrong with the way it was investigated. I had to leave out about 70% of the actual detail of the crime because there was just so many red herrings and dead ends and confusion around the case. It was the trial of the century. So uh, having this background, I decided to create a fictional detective 
to help answer the question, what really did happen to the girls? Yeah, it's it's uh, um, it, it's just the book is beautifully intricately plotted, and I thought it was a, a kind of a wonderful um, a wonderfully fruitful structure to take um, that particular solving the un- solving the unsolved crime through your own fictional detective, and there are a lot of. There are a lot of um, Sherlock Holmes references within the novel, as we saw even from that opening paragraph. And I was wondering uh, where that, when you when you first decided to to incorporate some of the more Conan Doyle like um, elements, and also whether, in addition to Conan Doyle, you had other influences. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I was um, always a great fan of Sherlock Holmes. My mom used to read Conan Doyle's books to us before I was 10 years old. Um, so the Speckled Band and the Hound of the Baskervilles. And uh, oh, she, she's an English teacher herself, and she simply loved the books. And so she'd read them to the three of us, my siblings and myself. And we grew up with them. Um, we could we could quote dialogue at each other <laughs> from various books. I had to go back and see. Well, eighteen ninety two, only two books had been published at the time: Sign of Four and the Study in Scarlet. So all the references and the quotes are from those two books because nothing else would have been available to Captain Jim at the time. Um, so I did research it pretty thoroughly and uh, loved incorporating. Holmes's little homilies in the way that Captain Jim is kind of teaching himself to be a detective because he's tired of the army. He's um, he's an in-between person. And by that, I mean, he's, you know, he's got elements of British upbringing. His father is English, but the father's unknown. He's sort of abandoned the family. Um, the mother is Indian, he knows, but... Uh, she died when he was very young and left him in an orphanage. So he didn't really know either one of his parents. And I thought, you know, somebody like that, who, who's sort of in between, must feel a sense of quandary because he's a British officer. He's lived all his life in the army. He's an in-between person, but he also has a lot of affinity for Indians. And so to stay in the army would feel like an anomaly to him. I have him just discuss thinking about this as he's beat up and recuperating and deciding he wants out and that he's going to be you know, initially a journalist because he likes writing and he's, he's enjoyed reading. And then, of course, very quickly he gets sucked into, being, into investigating this case. And so that appeals to his sense of uh, uh, you know, intrigue because he's been reading Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and, and and I enjoyed that transition tremendously. The other influences, uh, and they're, they're very obvious, but there are some hidden in there as well. Um, I have a few Easter eggs hidden for people that will recognize them. Uh, Kim by Rudyard Kipling. I have to admit that that was a marvelous book and I read it as a teenager and reread it as an adult. And it covers the this marvelous landscape of India. So Captain Jim, in order to solve the mystery, must 
travel through India. He goes all over uh, India. And so you get you know, these society ballrooms and marvelous uh, darbar halls and so on uh, from fictitious Rajput that didn't exist, but I was modeling it on Balasinur and on Hyderabad. Um, Balasinur actually had a female regent, a Muslim female regent, which is kind of rare, but you know the, the prosperity of the place and so on and the um, machinations I sort of took from the history of Hyderabad, which is a huge uh, princely state in the center of India. So he goes all over from those, you know, fairly elite, beautiful areas to magnificent mountain villages where they're very poor people, but essentially he's not quite sure if they're going to be friendly. But um, there's a lot of unexpected pieces in the book where he comes across people in the train. He um, you know, he comes across help where he doesn't expect it, and he comes across danger where he doesn't expect it, and then he comes across people who need him and derail him, take him off his task, much like we do in real life. <laughs> us. You, know, you can't stop living just because you're writing a book. You, know, you still need to do the things that you should do. Um, and I found myself getting derailed a few times. I said, all right, let's weave that in so that Captain Jim gets derailed. Because one must still be the person one is. One must still do the right things, even if it takes you off task temporarily, as long as you keep coming back. And Captain Jim does. So Kim by Rudyard Kipling was one that has this enormous breadth of landscape that is part of uh, my book. And there are little hidden references. I'll give you one, for example, is at one point, um, Captain Jim falls in love with the wrong person. And uh, there's all kinds of shenanigans happening there because he has this need to belong. He's looking for his place. Um, and then, yeah, some, at one point there's a sentence, um, I could not unlove her now. Um, so anyone who's read Jane Eyre, that will strike uh, a chord, even though Jane Eyre is written from a woman's point of view. I, I had the sense that, uh, you know, this is a hearkening back to uh, that that moment, because that was a book that really uh, was seminal for me. It, it changed the way I think. It gave me a sense of empowerment. Um, again, a book that I read as a teenager that was life-changing in many ways for me. But Jane Eyre is a romance where the woman leaves her lover. You know, all other romances that I've read, you know, women are doing all kinds of things, standing on their heads essentially to to make it work, to make the relationship work. And here was a woman who said, I respect myself enough to leave the man who wants me to do something, you know, unethical or in her case, immoral. Uh, I thought that was marvelous. That was just incredible. And so, yeah, there's a, a phrase from Jane Eyre, <laughs> the book as well. You would not expect that, <laughs> but there it is. Marvelous. I was thinking of um, so a couple of, of of parallels. I noticed one is um, I noted that Sujata Massey um, mm -hmm. wrote a uh, wrote a blurb on on your. Um, in the front cover of your book. Mm -hmm. And she also writes um, mystery novels. Hers are have uh, a, um, a Parsi woman detective. They're called the pervy mystery novels. Um, and I, I actually came across your book through her book because there are references in her books, which are set in Bombay of the 1920s. 
to the um, Rajabai clock tower mystery. And when I went to Google uh, more information about it, um, I found a recommendation for your book. And I, um, her books are much more, they're also extremely enjoyable and they're not, I don't mean to imply they're in any sense trashy, but your books are more um, ambitious in a kind of, they have a more densely literary quality, I would say, and are also more ambitious in kind of scope, um, in length and scope and, and, and level of historical detail. But, but there are definitely some resemblances there that I spotted. Had you, had you read her novels prior to, um, beginning yours? I had not. I was just delighted to discover Sujata Massey's uh, Widows of Malabar Hill. In fact, uh, the family, the Framji family that I created, the fictitious family, does live on Malabar Hill. My aunt lives on Malabar <laughs> Hill, and I know the geography, the topography and everything pretty well, the streets and so on. So uh, that was a natural fit. Um, Sujata Massey has been wonderful. Uh, I loved her second book um, where she develops the character a little bit more, gives it a little bit of a love interest, <laughs> um, the Satapur Moonstone, and then also has a little bit of the princely states, the machinations within those royal families. Um, she uses that in the second book. The third book is also wonderful, The Bombay Prince. Her books are set about 30 years after mine are, so it's a little bit more prominence of um, the independence movement, nationalism, and so on. Uh, in the 1890s, although Bal Gangadhar Tilak had started writing Kesari, uh, a Marathi-language newspaper in Pune, uh, nationalism was still you know, very barely there, barely there. Um, now, Dada Bainaruji had started grumbling about the drain of resources from India, but essentially Gandhi had gone off right then, 1893, went off to South Africa for 20 years. So those nationalists that remained hadn't really coalesced. They hadn't really gotten organized. Um, you know, Indian National Congress was still asking for Indians to be represented in civil service. That was their big demand at the time. Let Just give us a few jobs. That's all they wanted. So uh, my books really don't treat nationalism per se as a main theme because it didn't exist at the time in, in the way that we think of it now. I, I also want to make the point that one can have a noble goal and still go about it all wrong and that the means do not get cleansed just because you have a good goal uh, and that, you know, somehow having a lofty goal means you can do all kinds of rubbish to get there. Well, I, I don't, just don't subscribe to that. And, and I think that's one of the points I was trying to make in in this villain, who's who's a barely there villain, he's sort of behind a curtain for most of it, but he's scary and uh, very powerful because <laughs> he's got all these you know, people working for him that just appear out of nowhere, but uh, always seem to be one step ahead of my poor Captain Jim. Um, but he he gets his chops and he figures things out. Uh, the other author I absolutely adore is Abir Mukherjee, and he writes in the 1920s. He has a character that is a um, Scotland Yard detective from England who goes to Calcutta to solve cases, but he doesn't speak Bengali. So how do you cross-question people when you can't even speak the same language? Well, luckily, he has a sidekick, um, law um, 
student actually turned um, s- inspector, and he is uh, Surendranath. Um, and of course, because Surendranath is a difficult word, they call him Surrender Not Banerjee. Because he's a delightful character. They both are. Uh, and of course, the um, Captain Sam Wyndham is a, is a character. He has some demons of his own. Um, in fact, I I'm just started the third book in the series. It's absolutely delightful, <laughs> where the detective is struggling with his opium addiction. Marvelous setup. Fantastic. I look forward to reading those as well. And um, I did have a Dinyar Patel, who wrote um, a recent biography of, of Dadabai Nauroji on the podcast. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes if people are interested in the kind of beginnings of independence in this period. Um, but as you say, it's just it's just sort of the beginnings. Um, it's nothing like as prominent as it will will become later. Um, one other thing that I was thinking about a lot as I was reading the book is. Um, much of the book is is a, about um, clashes of identity and about issues of of race and identity, both in the main character, of course, and Captain Jim being half half English and half Indian, and um, the the kinds of constant tensions that arise from that. Um, and the ways in which people treat him and his difficulty in finding, a, in establishing a feeling of belonging. But it also features, um, the love affair between Captain Jim and, um, your heroine Diana, who is, um, a Parsi woman. And I, um, of course, this hits home very much for me because my father was Parsi and my mother was not Parsi. And I have experienced quite a spectrum of attitudes uh, towards that from people within the Parsi community. So I would say that most people have kind of accepted me as being Parsi. But uh, for some people, I'm definitely not Parsi because my mother was not Parsi, etc. And I wonder how you feel about the 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 attitudes within the Parsi community to whether to the the kind of um, gatekeeping of Parsi and Zoroastrian identity within the community, um, and whether that was something that was in your mind as you were putting together the book. Yeah, I think. The book evolved, right? I had this plan for how it would work out. I had a good plot. And then, of course, in the middle, Captain Jim went off and did some crazy things, got involved in these adventures, and uh, essentially just you know, being the guy he is. Um, but gradually it occurred to me, Mo and Diana appeared on the scene, actually. It occurred to me that, oh, dear, <laughs> we have a problem coming <laughs> Because um, the Parsi history, uh, you know, goes back to the 1800s. There was this a situation where our our elders got very much more orthodox in the late 1880s, 1890s, because of uh, because of actually an incident. There were five young men who well educated from good families, and they converted to Christianity. 
And this shocked the elders so tremendously that there was this big reckoning of, oh, my God, all our youngsters have gotten so westernized and we've been promoting education because Parsis, uh, you know, uh, really believe in education. One of the earliest communities in India to start educating women. Um, So it it was a bit of a shock that this uh, progressive trend that everyone was behind had actually led to a sort of a loss, a loss, uh, you know, of of these young men to the religion. And so at that point, um, essentially, they you know slammed down a bunch of rules that had been there in lurking in the background, but hadn't really been followed up to that point. You know, intermarriages were pretty common in the, say, 1600s, 1700s. But um, by the late 1800s, I think the community had recognized that if we were going to preserve our identity, that we had to try to restrict marriages. And... Um, my own personal opinion is that this went too far, right? I have a number of aunts and uncles who never married because they couldn't find a partner within the community, decided they were not going to settle. They didn't, um, weren't allowed to look outside the community, or if they did find someone outside the community, it would have been taboo. They would have been shunned. Worse, you know, it would have been enormous uh, scandal and conflict if they had, had chosen to do that. One of my um, uncles did actually marry outside. It was the first uh, intermarried family, and it, it caused a little bit of a stir. But, you know, by then, I mean, we're talking about the 1960s, things had settled down. Uh, but you did have situations in historically, uh, you know, Dina Pettit, when she married Muhammad Ali Jinnah, uh, the Pettit family was absolutely broken over it. And uh, that poor girl, she was discarded, literally thrown out. But then she couldn't really make it with her husband's orthodox Muslim family and ended up living in, after she separated from Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, uh, ended up living in the Taj Mahal Hotel. And I think the girl died in her mid-twenties. It's just, you know, heartbroken, extremely depressed. But this is this is a contradiction where... I realized the people who followed this kind of thinking were, call them orthodox or traditionalists, are very good people. They are kind, they are generous, they are loving people, and yet they do terrible harm. Um, So I created this character, Barjo, who's actually based on two people I know and love dearly (laughs) and have told them so, Uh, and, and... trying to explain to them that their adherence to this principle is causing more ill than good. And so, um, you know, Barger in the story, essentially one of the first things he tells Captain Jim is you can't marry Diana. And, and, and that's, um, you know, sort of star-crossed lovers from that point on, but uh, and things will happen as they will. As they will. Uh, so at the end of the, the, the day I had this subplot, a romantic subplot of um, Captain Jim falling in love with his client's sister. And uh, essentially it echoes the problems of identity and problems of belonging that he feels from his uh, race, from his upbringing, uh, his Anglo-Indian identity causes him to feel you know, at home in villages as well as in ballrooms, but really not belonging. And the same way that is echoed in his romantic subplot, right? The, the the person that he feels most comfortable with is both English educated and she's essentially Indian. 
So that's the person he he um, gravitates towards because she thinks like him and, and um, you know has that same uh, dichotomy within herself. And yet, and yet, she will not be allowed to marry him. So resolving that she took an extra twenty pages at the end of the book. I know when it's not genre, right? So according to the, the rules of the genre, conventions of the mystery genre you want to reveal the villain way at the end and resolve everything in two pages. Well, <laughs> that didn't work for me. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of different threads to tie up and you, I, I really like the fact that you didn't do this thing of waiting until the last chapter and then tying them all up at once. Um, but you gave us each of the answers. Uh, you, there are a number of, questions of kind of urgent and urgent and mysterious questions to be solved that are set up in the course of the novel one of which is how will captain jim and diana's love affair end how can they possibly get together it seems completely um completely impossible and um you give us the answers to each of those questions one at a time and it makes for a really enjoyable last sort of four or five chapters of the novel. Um, I listened to the novel on audiobook and I listened to it whilst I was um, running. And I saved it for only when I was running because I hate running and I need to encourage myself. So um, I was only permitted to enjoy the novel when I was running. And when it got to those last chapters, I did some extra long runs because I just had to get to the end of the chapter and hear the answer. That's marvelous. I am so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I know this is one of the best parts of writing uh, is when someone really appreciates it, really gets it, and, and is as riveted by the story as I was when I was writing. I wrote nearly nonstop for four months. I did very little else. I forgot to eat frequently, forgot to sleep. Um, and the story hijacked me, essentially. Um, I've gotten a little bit better at managing my life since then. <laughs> but the story was that addictive and did feel like it had a life of its own. So I'm delighted that you got that same sense of um, trajectory and urgency and uh, enjoyed the way it was uh, laid out. It turned out to be more ambitious than I had planned. Um, now that I think about it, you know, it's a pretty wide, wide swath that it cuts. And for that matter, when I was editing Peril at the Exposition, I went, oh my God, what was I thinking? It is just too damn ambitious. But um, it's come together nicely, so I'm I'm hopeful <laughs> that it will work as well as um, Murder in Old Bombay. I'm very pleased the way, at the way Murder in Old Bombay came out delighted at Vic Adams' performance of it. All 20-plus characters were done magnificently. And uh, Macmillan has really done a fine job of putting it all together. But this, yeah, one of the, the best author. parts of it is hearing people, <laughs> your <laughs> comments particularly. Uh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's uh, um, Vic is one of the best audiobook narrators I've I've heard in a while. Um, the audiobook is really beautifully realized. Um, 
And your novel does have a very cinematographic quality and a kind of panoramic quality. Um, there's a little bit of a feeling of, of um, I was uh, reminded somewhat of Shantaram, of Gregory Roberts' novel Shantaram, in the kind of scope and the sort of um, um, the way in which Bombay life is juxtaposed with a life up in the in the north, um, in the in the north of India, in Shantaram. I I think they're actually in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan as well. Um, I was reminded of that in its kind of scope and panoramic quality. And I was also thinking a lot about Salman Rushdie's um, essay collection, Imaginary Homelands. So your writing, your writing style is not at all similar to Rushdie's, but this preoccupation with people whose who span two cultures, whose identity spans two cultures, um, the Indian who is educated in Britain, the Anglo-Indian who's half British, half Indian, the the love affair between the Parsi woman and the and the Anglo-Indian man, and the that that sort of um, preoccupation with hybrid, with hybridity and um, hybrid identities, very much reminded me of uh, Rushdie, um, of Rushdie's essays. I was wondering, so I know that you did some of the research for the novel back in Bombay. Um, how much of the time during the writing of the novel did you spend in India? Or did you do most of the actual writing um, from from the States? Yeah, I was thinking about the novel and started making some notes when I was in India. So from 2014 onwards, I was back and forth in India for my parents' medical attention. And we had months in hospital, right? So they don't have Wi-Fi um, there. And you know, here I'm sitting there with my notebook and uh, grabbing these little pieces of scenes that wafted by me. Um, you know, we had months um, there and I'd, I'd play music and so on and you know, try to entertain my mom, but also times when she was asleep and I'm sitting there going, okay, you know, let's, let's try to grab that scene. So I, I didn't have a proper plot, but I had an idea. Um, a lot of it was sort of in my head. Um, I think memories coming back in dribs and drabs, uh, memories of my childhood, memories of Pune, um, travels that I'd done with my parents. We'd gone by train here and there. And um, not quite sure how it all fit together. It's sort of a cloud of different uh, colors um, moving around. I, I just loved, allowed myself the luxury of a little nostalgia. When I came back to the U.S. and got back to my computer, um, that's when I said, all right, let's, let's actually try to write a plot and so um, I've worked 20 years as a business analyst. I love Excel. So, of course, I do everything with charts. And I try to, um, you know, uh, put it into a, a quantifiable system. And, uh, you know, let's see, A has to follow, be followed by B and C and D. Of course, when you have multiple threads and things don't work, but at least it gave me a framework. And I think that gave me the courage to do it. I did go back and forth to India, so I actually ended up going to the Rajabai Tower, which is closed to the public. 
I'd written them letters. Nobody replied. So I actually landed up at the university, um, you know, went from pillar to post and just um, went and asked them whether I could visit the tower. I actually went up. I have a little summary of my visit in my, on my website. Uh, it was a terrifying visit, by the way, because the tower has been closed for a reason. It is intensely claustrophobic in there. It's uh, You're going up 250 steps, and they do have light, but um, a lot of the air gaps have been closed to try to protect it from uh, birds, I guess. Uh, we did climb over a bird's nest somewhere at the top. And, you know, you're touching stone on either side, and there's only about a foot above me. Um, you know, so the only thing that allowed me to go up was the fact that nobody was behind me. So I could at any point in time turn around. It was 95 degrees in the shade. That didn't help. Um, so climbing up was <laughs> pretty traumatic. Um, I stopped a few times because of these resonance rooms that you can enter and you can get, grab a breath in there, um, catch your breath as well. And I had my iPhone, so I took a few photographs and a few videos. And uh, coming back down with a phone in one hand, grabbing the tiny railing with the other, uh, walking in my spongy Crocs, which are not good for climbing stairs. <laughs> um, like I said, it was traumatic. But um, I also had this marvelous sense of place, this the sense of... There's one piece where Captain Jim's charging up the stairs because Udi has gone up ahead of him and he can hear Udi yell in the tower. Um, I just got chills when I was there because I could feel it. I could feel his angst as he's trudging upstairs. He's just been wounded, so he can't go very fast. And uh, meanwhile, Adi is this lithe, slim young man who's charging upstairs uh, looking for Diana, actually. So the sense of place was marvelous. Uh, also got the sense of greenery and the beautiful statues and um, awnings and uh, you know the the archways, the trellis roof, um, the beautiful Gothic look of it from the outside gives you a sense of time. And then going up within the triangular stairs that turn and turn and turn forever, that really um, it got me motivated. That sense of place. Um, it, you can you get a, a good sense of this. Uh, curiously, they, I was not allowed to go in the gallery from which the girls leapt or or were pushed um, because that gallery is closed. I think the university, despite my pleas, they were trying to protect me from myself. So they sent up they sent me up with a lady guard, um, mm -hmm. but did not give her the key to the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> so after all that agony and torture, I didn't actually see the the scenery from up there. And, and honestly, that's probably another reason. Um, that area, now that I think about it, it overlooks Western Command, which is where the battleships, India's battleships are off the coast of Bombay. You don't know it because there's a massive wall there. But if I had gotten up that high, probably I could have taken photographs. And, uh, you know, it's probably some defense regulation that prevents civilians from taking photographs of military installations. So, All right. Been, oh, know, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I passed that tower all the time when I when I lived in Bombay um, because I, I, I lived in Colaba and uh, it was quite close 
And I would walk along there all the time, ironically, to go and shop for a few kind of posh treats at Godridge Nature's Baskets. Wonderful. Yeah. So I used to go to Port Trust. Um, the Port Trust building is another magnificent uh, architectural building, um, you know, on the western side of Bombay and uh, Mumbai now. And there are these, you know, you walk down from Victoria's Terminus, VT Station, uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji Station, probably. It goes down all the way south to along that um, long road, and you pass this enormous wall to your left. You're walking along this wall, which is uh, maybe thirty feet high or forty feet high, and um, it's it's a stone wall. So yeah, it's been there forever, and nobody thinks anything more of it. But uh, Bombay did have three dockyards and Port Trust is massive building, um, squats across that whole area. Uh, I used to go visit my aunt because she was chairman to the Port Trust um, for 40 years. And I, I, as a teenager, loved to go, you know, see her at work. Uh, just, you know, it was a wonderful role model for me as a working woman. But also you get to walk through those corridors and overlook some of the um, naval port installations there. And so I knew it was there. It's just that when you're on the road or you're in part of Bombay, you don't realize that, you know, a hundred feet from you, there are probably massive battleships sitting there. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, you did say you had a couple more passages from the book that you'd be happy to read. Maybe you could read uh, one of them first. I'd love to. So this is a piece that talks a little bit to uh, the romance subplot. And then uh, there's another piece I will go into a little later. It's chapter 23, <clears throat> The Dance. The following day, I entered the empty morning room to see a splash of color pass outside the window. Through the French door, I saw Diana fleeing along the balcony as though chased by the hound of hell. Surprised, I called after her. Miss Diana! Perhaps I could repair the damage I'd done with my brusque treatment. A hand to her mouth, she paused. Excuse me, Captain, I'm not good company just at present, she said, turning to go. Wait, Miss... I reached her in a few long strides. What's the matter? She ducked her head, cheeks flushed. Nothing. She shook her head, tucking in a wayward lock. Her distress alarmed me. What could have caused it? Who? Miss, forgive me, I must know. Diana slanted me a surprised look, so I explained. Adi noticed Lady Butcher was withdrawn and quiet. It cuts him cruelly now that he did not press her for an answer. She stared. And you won't make that error. Precisely. Diana took a shaky breath. It's nothing, Captain, really, only that sometimes I feel my parents will sell me to the highest bidder. Shocked, I said. Yes. No, I'm being silly. They only want what's best for me. She sighed. Papa won't insist I marry right away, but I must prepare for it, meeting eligible young men, their parents. That was the source of her upset. Would that be so terrible? I ventured. No, but... She placed her delicate fingers upon the balustrade and gazed at the lawn without seeing it. You cannot know what it's like. All my friends are married, yet I'm afraid. They were so sought after before. Now one barely sees her husband. Another cannot stand her. 
and my friend Jeannie, she whispered, tries to hide bruises. Good heavens, some are happy, surely? Perhaps, she said, glancing sideways. Advised me then as a disinterested friend. Disinterested? Here was testament to her innocence. When I said nothing, she prompted, Captain Jim? You're very young, miss, I said at last. Diana looked affronted. Whatever can you mean? No one is disinterested, Miss Diana. Self-interest is the one thing you can count on, in my experience. Her serious gaze traced my features. As a friend, then, advise me, what should I do? I half smiled. I know nothing of matrimony. Diana's mood lifted. But you know men. That I did, having spent my life amongst all manner of them. At last I said, The man who wins you will be fortunate above all others. Be sure he earns your regard. A dimple appeared in Diana's cheek. Why, Captain, thank you. She searched my face. So you've forgiven me? I think we'll stop there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> lovely. What a lovely passage. So, um, and one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, in a recent interview, or actually I don't know how recent it was, in an interview that I recently discovered, you say, truly we write to discover what we think, which I found a very intriguing statement. What things did you discover that you thought as you were writing Murder in Old Bombay? Yeah. I think we do evolve our thinking as we write. I had a sense of you know my my own community trying to move them towards something more progressive, uh, a little bit more acceptance uh, in two thousand and eight. So I wrote this book in two thousand and seventeen, so almost a decade before I wrote the book. I'd had the Navjot of a boy. Uh, who had a Parsi mother and a um, Hindu father. And I had that Navjot in my house. And I was vice president of Zagni at the time, but I was making a statement. I was trying to tell people, I approve this. If you have a problem with it, talk to me, don't talk to them. I was trying to make that statement that, that you know, of protection to them in a sense. Um, and, and it was one of the early ones that, you know, we've had many, many Navjots. Uh, that's the... Uh, in, investiture of the Sadharan Kasti, which essentially is like a communion. It welcomes a child into the religion, sense of acceptance and so on. Um, you're officially a Zoroastrian if you've had your Nojot, right? So I was trying to say that at that time. It's almost a decade before the book. But as I wrote, I think I came to a greater understanding of why people opposed those Nojots or opposed the intermarriages. Um, this this sense of our identity slipping away, um, that people were so worried that their identity would be watered down, that the next generation, nobody would speak Gujarati or nobody would remember to celebrate birthdays the way that we do, that, that, that even the moral code that we live by would be watered down and people would forget all that. And therefore, there would be nothing left of the ancient Zoroastrians that have preserved that philosophy and that moral code of good thoughts, good words, good deeds, you know, for 3,000 years or more. 
you know that 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 pathos, the the urgency around it, that I think I understood a lot more when I was writing the book. Um, earlier, I think I had been much more um, persuasive, even or persuaded that we must modernize. We've got to get rid of these, you know, archaic ideas of bloodlines and. Um, that somehow our genes are special and we have to continue the genes. Like, for God's sake, you know, eugenics went out almost a decade ago. We've got to let go of this nonsense. That was my thinking earlier. Um, and while both positions are true, there is a middle path. And I think that middle path um, I discovered while writing the book. And that's one example. Um uh, on the other side, there's this sense of, um, you know, nationalism that I, I I was fervently, you know, pro-Indian, even with all its nonsense and the craziness of crowds and the way that people are utterly corrupt and maddening. But I still had this enormous love for country and still do. Um, individually, I have not come across anyone, any people who are so quick to be friendly. You make lifelong friends if you just travel by train one time and chit-chat with the person sitting next to you. Um, you know, they are so hospitable, so kind, so generous um, to strangers, to complete strangers. And, you know, yet uh, in groups, they will do ridiculous, horrible things. That contradiction has long been with me and I needed to have a way to try to resolve it. Um, why do people do the way the things that they do, the way they do them? And so this book gave me a sense of trying to resolve that. Um, there's a situation in when Captain Jim's traveling by train and he falls asleep and he ends up attacking somebody because of his nightmares. And And there's kindness. There's kindness actually in the strangers around him. I just needed to resolve that with the fact that you know he he can't feel at home because of the the barriers that his uh, his uh, own identity his own mixed race gives him so while people can still preserve this ridiculous uh, prejudice you know just for how a person sounds or how they how they um behave or their name you know for god's sake um they can also be very kind. The same people, the same bloody people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and that that understanding, I think, came about in the process of this book. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that it's it's something that makes a novel a really uh, makes something a good novel is that good novelists explore those moments of tension, um, those kind of a ambivalences and, um, and uh, you know, exactly those points at which um, you have two conflicting ideas or ideologies or worldviews. And um, it's, it's hard to, you can't dismiss either of them completely outright. So true. I have a number of characters who initially um, appear as maybe you know, enemies or, or foes or just opposed to uh, Captain Jim and, and end up being helpful in the other way around as well. Um, so 
there's one piece I'd like to read to you, which is uh, where Captain Jim first meets uh, McIntyre. <laughs> and he's just been beaten up. Uh, Captain Jim has just been beaten up. So uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, couple of pages that uh, we could do. Uh, oh, yes, please. Mm-hmm. So this is Chapter 14, Cap- Dr. Jameson's Revelations. I awoke in a battleground of pain. I tried to move and my head exploded, a full volley of cannons. My shoulder shrieked a violent protest, elbow, ribs, and knee fired in rapid staccato. A voice behind me said, nice to do, was it? I said, go to the devil, and heard a chuckle. Not dead yet? Well, young man, you've certainly given it a go. That required no reply. A physician stood over me, sleeves rolled up, bearing forearms. He probed my ribs, grumbled, and proceeded to bend each of my joints in a most unfriendly manner. So, he said, when I he turned my head a few times and peered into my eyes, what happened? Mm. My left eye throbbed and I flinched away from his grip. What did happen? Images scattered in my mind, an ugly grimace under a white brown turban, dark limbs, a wooden pole cracking down on my shoulder. I've seen fewer broken bones on a corpse, the medico said. That brought me up cold. Not that bad, surely? I knew the pain of a broken limb, the awful weight of it. Neither shoulder nor elbow seemed quite that bad. Was it my knee, then? The doctor's smile broadened. No, but you've collected some nice bruises. He tapped my ribs, thumbs, kneading my, the knot on my breastbone. These mended when you were a lad, I take it. Your forearm is much more recent. And the shrapnel? Seen many soldiers, doctor? My voice slurred. I could avoid speaking of Karachi, even thinking of it, but that grisly history was etched into my skin. Mm. The doctor made some notes and instructed an orderly to bind my elbow. The door opened briskly. A thick-set English officer in a regimental uniform stomped in, filling the infirmary with his presence. So this is the blighter, he said. Though still groggy, I felt an urge to snap to attention, but my limbs would not obey. Name, rank, the officer demanded, chin forward, regiment, blast. My dratted mustache shouted army no matter where I was. James Agnihotri, captain, retired, 14th Light Cavalry. His lips tightened, a common reaction when Englishmen heard my name and realized I was Anglo-Indian, mixed blood and all that, frowned upon by one and all. On my other side, the doctor greeted him. Good morning, chief. So this was Chief Superintendent McIntyre, who had investigated the ladies' deaths. Good heavens. Jameson, said McIntyre, irate, this fellow has been causing trouble all over town. University, Ripon Club. He scowled at me. Agni Hotri, eh? What are you after? I made no reply. My brain was slowing, wheels chugging to a halt while the engine puffed weary gusts. His sandy mustache bristled. The governor sent me a note, sir. Why is army looking into a police matter? You've caused an almighty cock-up. What do you mean by it? The governor of Bombay presidency knew about me? God almighty. My apologies, I said, wheezing. I've a fine mind to arrest you, he growled. Who do you work for? Brown and Butleywaller. Solicitors, he said. Doing what? Messages, mostly. 
I invented. That should get the situation to a D. What do you know about the clock tower, eh? The clock tower deaths? I remained silent. If ever discretion was advised, now was the time. Tread carefully, soldier, said the superintendent of police. Where were you on the 25th of October? Thank you. Um... I would actually also like to read a passage, if I may, because I think this is very relevant to um, the the questions of Parsi identity that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also to um, the theme within the book of, of evolving relationships, um, relationships that begin in hostility and then move towards cooperation or even friendship and vice versa. Um, and before I forget, I also wanted to mention that if anybody reading this um, is um, uh, has at least one Parsi grandparent, um, please take part in my friend Nasneen Engineer's um, survey of Parsis worldwide. And uh, I will I will put a link to that in the show notes. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself Parsi or uh, grew up Parsi or Zoroastrian. If you have one Parsi um, grandparent, then please take part in the survey. Um, uh, I'm I'm reading a short passage from uh, chapter twenty four. Uh, it's called uh, confrontation, and it's a conversation between Burjor the heroine's father, and um, and Captain Jim. Have a seat, Captain. Burjor indicated the settee and dropped into a chair. I sat down with growing concern. He'd been a generous host all evening, but now his customary bonhomie was conspicuously absent. Had I given cause for rebuke? Searching my memory brought forth no clues. Had something occurred this very evening? A long pause followed in which he appeared to consider an opening. However, he did not speak. Instead, he rose and went to the alcove by his desk that contained his saint's portrait. There he bent his head before it and prayed softly. Remonstrations I could have managed, even an uncalled-for reprimand. His strange expression was fear? Surely not. Some deep-seated worry, then. My puzzlement melted to compassion for my troubled host. Whatever it is, sir, let's have it, I said into the oppressive quiet. He returned after a few moments, his footsteps unwilling, and slumped on the brocade seat. His deep-set eyes regarded me steadily. Sometimes I'm not sure, he began, that I'm doing the right thing. It helps to speak to the prophet. He motioned toward the alcove, saying, you know we are Parsis, of course. I nodded, further mystified at his choice of topic. He continued, But you may not know what that is. We are Zoroastrians, followers of that ancient prophet Zarathustra. Pointing at the saint's portrait, he went on, We do not convert anyone to be Zoroastrian. Centuries ago our ancestors came to Gujarat as refugees from Pars in Persia. We are very few perhaps a hundred thousand in all. I waited. This history did not explain the ominous ominous tone of his interview. He said, So if a son or daughter marries someone who is not Parsi, well, they can no longer continue the race. 
they are as good as lost to us. I offered, I've heard Mrs. Framgey speak about it at breakfast. Yes. His voice lifted in palpable relief. So you see? Well, no. My words drew him back into a fretful state. He rocked in his chair. Captain, you cannot marry Diana, he said finally. Whatever I had expected, it was not this. Astonishment gave way to bitterness. I was a mixed breed, a bastard, not worthy of his daughter. Had I not seen that mix of pity and disapproval all my life? Indians did not tolerate the mingling of races any more than the English. In polite circles, a man who was happy until then to shake my hand would hear my name, James Agnihotri, and pause. His shoulders would stiffen, and he might spot an acquaintance across the room and need to meet him. Women, who seemed perfectly gracious, as they heard my Indian surname, their eyes might widen with understanding. Those quick glances of confirmation, how well I knew them, and the reserve that followed, polite, distant, and final. But this from Burjor, whom I extolled as an exemplary father, that he thought so little of me cut deep. I wiped emotion from my face, but now he seemed attuned to me and grimaced an apology. No, Captain, it's not that. I see great merit in you. We owe you a great deal. You are not responsible for an accident of birth. His chest swelled with a heavy breath. No, it is Diana. Two brides were lost to us, to my clan, Captain. We cannot lose another. The creases around his mouth deepened. His voice dropped to a whisper. Our customs are all we have. I'll end there. Wonderful selection. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you have written a second book now, um, a second installment uh, with Captain Jim as your protagonist. And what was the experience of that like? Did that already start to come to uh, take shape in your head as you were writing this book? Um, or was it easier to write a sequel or harder, you think, than starting afresh? And what led you to think about creating a series here? And do you have a series in mind? Will there be more Captain Jim books? <laughs> Lots of questions. And a lot of questions at once. There will be Sorry. more, yes. Uh, there will be more because the characters speak to me and there are situations they encounter. And that decade, the 1890s, before the turn of the century, um, turn of the 20th century, uh, was so pivotal in so many ways. Uh, in many ways, historical mysteries, historical writing isn't really about history, it's about now, because so many things are back to the way they were, inequalities of income. Uh, this whole divide that uh, America is in the middle of is is akin to the labor capital divide of the 1890s, of the Gilded Age. Um, and, and we're making so many of the same mistakes again and again and again. And, uh, you know, Citizens United, uh, not to go too far into politics, but it allows super PACs to fund and buy, essentially, uh, candidates. Well, you know, you start reading about the muckrakers and you find that that is exactly what they were protesting about and 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 
campaign finance reform of the early 1900s was created because of that. So we're doing the same thing again. We have made the exact same mistake in, in a larger fashion than ever before. Um, so many, I, I you know, could just tell you so many of today's problems have been experienced some sort of some not in the past, right? Some we were able to address through legislation, through social reform, uh, and some we have not addressed, and that's why they keep growing and growing. Uh, and the curse of a writer is to be able to see some of these things. The challenge of the writer is to be able to tell a story so that others can see these things. <laughs> and that is the dichotomy right there. Um, so I did have a series in mind because each year of that decade uh, brings new challenges. And I, you know, I understand that a lot of what troubled Captain Jim in that first chapter, uh, his memories of Karachi, his uh, guilt over what he thinks he's done, um, essentially that propels him to try to redeem himself. Some of that has been resolved by the end of the book, but he's a complex character. And essentially we are not who we, as we see ourselves. Um, there are things that we can't see about ourselves, right? And that other people can see. And so the second book, a large portion of it is not written in the voice of Captain Jim. Uh, in the first chapter, I will tell you right now, the first chapter, the end of the first chapter of Peril at the Exposition, Captain Jim is missing. And Diana, little Diana, little perfect privileged miss has to dive into all kinds of uh, horrible places. Um, of course, she does it with flair. She does everything with flair. <laughs> and so she is 22 years old at this point, newly wed and missing her detective husband. And so she um, very unwillingly at first um, you know, at first, all she wants to do is to find him and tell him we need to go home. That's all she wants to do. But of course, he won't go home, and she gets sucked deeper and deeper and deeper into the investigation. And it turns into from a murder investigation into something of a thriller, because um, that era is so filled with dramatic tension um, between the working class people. You know, couldn't get a fair deal. No matter you know, if you're earning less than a dollar a day and, and, and a single meal costs 25 cents, how can you run a family? How can you afford anything? And meanwhile, you have this enormous elite wealthy class that essentially blames the poor for sloth, blames them for drinking, wants to close down taverns and bars and, and you know, led to prohibition, essentially. So you have this enormous dichotomy uh, of opinion. You have child labor, uh, women force, uh, forcing themselves into prostitution, essentially to earn, a, to, to survive, to earn a meal. And at the same time, you have um, an elite class that is speculating and, uh, and there's reasons for why they could not be charitable or could not be, um, what we would consider uh, noble or high thinking, 
um, because they were terrified of losing it all as well. And you had bank failures every alternate year. Um, you know, 1893 has uh, is also a watershed year for bank failures and recessions. And these things do play on the way that we behave with our money uh, or with our transactions and the way that we negotiate with others. So uh, there's a lot to be said about that era. And so there will be a lot of things for Captain Jim to help figure out. Um, There are also some unexplained events from that time. Iona, I gravitate towards historical events, big or small, that haven't really been explained. Um, Explosions that occurred. um, uh, Recently, we were in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and I came across the life-saving station, uh, which curiously enough was <laughs> built in the 1890s, um, you know, and and there are there's an event there that um, caused the creation of that life-saving station in Rehoboth Beach, um, where there was a shipwreck and six bodies were recovered. However, there are seven graves. Uh, okay, there is a story Ooh. there. <laughs> there is a story there. Meanwhile, I just read another article about, again, you know, that, that era. Uh, the daughter of Aaron Burr, right? So Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton were uh, contemporaries, but also enemies. Um, the one shot the other in a duel, right? Uh, so Aaron Burr, uh, there's a mystery around his daughter. His daughter was well, well married, well placed, was traveling by ship from uh, Virginia, I believe it was, to try to reach her father in New York and went missing. Uh, it was in the newspapers. Yeah. And for the next two decades, people kept showing up saying that they were the missing uh, Miss Burr, but uh, you know, we don't know what happened to her. So again, things that really happened but then I, I go back and somehow my mind can't let go of them. So I try to think of what else was happening at the time. And uh, those two incidents, the Rehoboth Beach um, extra grave <laughs> and somehow Aaron Burr's missing daughter. I just know there's a story there. I don't know what it is. And so I will have to write the book to find out what the story is. <laughs> That's fantastic. I really look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. Oh, this has been such a pleasure. Did you want me to read a little bit about the spooky um, adventure that Captain Jim goes into, uh, you know, the Zanana part? Uh, with I mean, I, I leave it up to you. We can oh, always re- no, I think that would be a lovely uh, way to end with another extract from, from the novel. Oh, marvelous. Okay. Um, so the novel has a lot of ambiance, a lot of color, um, but more than that, it's it's um, if you can't travel <laughs> or don't want to risk air travel at this point in time, uh, a novel is a marvelous way to do it. And there are some beautiful books about different places that I have enjoyed over the last two years. And so here's a little bit that I'd like to read that's the end of chapter 39 and maybe a couple pages into chapter 40 that um, talk about Captain Jim's um, investigation that leads him into some very strange places. Ranbir said he'd avoided several Afghan soldiers, then grinned. 
These people are very superstitious. That old palace by the river in the broken fort, they are all afraid of it. <laughs> they say the Zanana, the woman's quarters, is haunted. Haunted? Why? I ate a kebab, wondering what use this knowledge might be. An old shoemaker told me the story. Some 200 years ago, a Mughal king tried to capture Pathan Ghat. This town was a stronghold of a Pathan Thakur and his queen, the Thakurani. The Ranbir mused, there are many such tales in the mountains. Why is it haunted? I dunked the last kebab into an earthen pot of yogurt and popped it into my mouth. The Thakur tribe died bravely in battle, but the Thakurani would not be taken. Rather than become slaves, she and all her court ladies committed Johar. They jumped from the battlements and died. A shiver ran down my arms. It sounded strangely like the mystery I needed to unravel. Two centuries later, had Lady Bacha and Miss Pilu faced a similar threat? The old man said their ghosts cry out still. Ranbir continued, their wails are heard on quiet nights. Skeptical, I frowned. From the Zanana? Dusk was upon us as we decided to search the crumbling fortifications on the edge of town. The Gurkha troop might have secured themselves in its maze of corridors and tunnels, but in the dark, how could we find them? Ranbir paid the sleepy stableman who spat sideways on the straw and then untied our horses. I climbed into the saddle and pointed my Arabian to the town outskirts. She walked gently, hooves clip-clopping in the starry night. The market having closed, we wove through a few villages, trudging homeward. Night comes quickly in the mountains. The air was crisp and still. Navigating cobbles, long since crumbled, that lay loose and uneven in our path, our horses' hooves clinked on stone, high notes interspersed with hoofbeats. I winced. Could the sentries at the crossroads hear us? The fortress loomed, dark and formless. It had been shelled years ago, leaving wide gashes in the wall, a wall that bled piles of stone, great blocks of it slowing our pace. The outer fortifications towered on my right. I nudged my horse along the perimeter, trusting her to navigate the rubble. Rain slack, she slept carefully, dropping her head now and then to sniff at stones. Stopping at a dark hollow, a crevice in the wall, she shook her mane as though to ask, Are you bloody sure you want to do this? She'd found a way into the fortress, but could we find our way out? Night is not the time to explore for unfamiliar terrain, yet it was all we had. My injury had cost us three days. With a nudge of my knees, the Arabian stepped through the broken archway into the forest fortress courtyard. A sliver of moon left the clouds to gleam high above, allowing me a view of vast fortifications. Two tourists loomed at either end of a forward wall, vantage points to pick us off with a bullet. The courtyard offered no shelter between outer and inner walls, a space designed to trap intruders. Baudi, said Ranbir, this is not a good place. An archway to one side led to an inner locus, the Zenana or women's quarters, marked by narrow windows overlooking a courtyard. I hesitated, reluctant to end a maze of unfamiliar passages, but there was no help for it. We must find Greer's men and Dr. Aziz. Grateful for moonlight, I searched the shadows for movement. The air was cooler amid the fog and silent stones. Among these walls, one could almost believe in spirits. 
Suddenly, a plaintive wail wound through the ruin, creeping over bare stones, chilling in its despair. My breath caught, disbelieving. The Arabian lurched sideways, hooves clattering, a familiar sound, comforting in its normalcy, in contrast to the otherworldly cry. The screech faded, leaving an expectant silence. I held tight to the reins, cold creeping over my skin. We should leave this alien place. And let's stop there. Thank you so much. Nev, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. And uh, perhaps we can reprise this um, once your new novel is out. I would be delighted to do that. Absolutely delighted. Um, so I can't recommend this novel highly enough. Um, everybody, what are you waiting for? If you haven't already, go read it. And meanwhile, have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much, Iona. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you for wonderful questions and uh, delighted to be on your podcast. And thank you very, very much. My pleasure. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.